0: The text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 13. Let me pray. Lord, as we continue to worship you and now come to read, to hear, and to submit to your word, we trust. That it is alive and it is active, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it will penetrate into the deepest recesses of our affections and will and thinking and consciousness, and that you will do a cleansing and convicting, even a saving work, Lord, this morning. We give you praise, Lord. Amen. Let me read the text starting with verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering this rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they did also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith and those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of the disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Verse 9, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of their heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. As we look at this passage, there should jump out to you a key word that's repeated over and over and over and over again. And it's a four-letter word. This four-letter word is the word rest. This is the key word, the key theme of this sermon, of this text, is rest. I think this is the seventh sermon in this mini-series of deal with the heart, deal with drifting away from Christ. If you deal with your heart issues, then that will help you not to drift away from Jesus. And we've seen six different treatments for the heart to help us not to drift away. And this morning is the seventh treatment, and it's one word, rest. Not sleep, it's not take a nap during the sermon, it's rest, and ultimately it's resting in Christ. This seventh treatment that we take to help our heart not to drift away from Jesus Christ is resting in Christ, and this actually is a huge theme And the whole Bible, and we'll see this in just a moment, but right, it starts from the beginning, and it goes really all the way to the end, and ultimately when we get to heaven, though we will be reigning and working for Christ, there is an absolute sense of rest in heaven forever. So this morning, to get one word, and this ultimately one-point sermon would be, Rest. I had a friend that preached last week. My friend Jose preached last week at his chapel at the school he teaches in. And he's also going to seminary currently. And he said, Tom, I, I gave the preaching point about eight different times. And I said the preaching point one sentence. Tom, I said at the same time, eight different times, in about 15 minutes. And afterwards, I asked somebody, what was the sermon about? And they had no idea. They said, God. And I know that can happen. So the sentence for this morning is one word. REST. R-E-S-T. Again, not sleep. Don't go asleep on me this morning. Not that you normally do. But rest. R-E-S-T. Okay? That's the treatment that your heart needs. But you need a biblical rest. Now, for us to understand this, we're going to look at verse 1, which is a resolve. You can see in verse 1, let us fear. But also, then there will be another point, a second point, underneath rest, another resolve. Therefore, let us be Diligent. These are imperatives, but it would be as if I said, okay, let's take a break and let us all of us right now take a nap. That is an imperative, but it's also an invitation. I'm I'm inviting you. It's a type of a polite way, but also a, a way to involve everybody and to get us to do something. And even in this context, these are resolves. And the first one is this. Again, rest. That's the main idea of the sermon. Rest. But what does that mean? It means that you are alarmed. You are alarmed. You know, I, I, I really love my children. Number one, because they're my children, but also they, they're fun. And sometimes they would take my cell phone. Kids, don't do this. They would take my cell phone and set my alarm go off at a strange time in the night. <laughs> and it's fun. They, they they do it just to joke around with me and it's a fun time. But when that alarm goes off, what happens? Beep 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 beep. Oh, oh, what's going on? What's going on? Fire. It's a, an alarm. And this first verse here, let us fear, it's the fear of alarm. This means you are alarmed because lack of faith at the finish line will send you to hell. So there is alarm. Rest. What what does this mean? Well, part of what rest means actually is in this context that you have an alarm in your heart. That if you are lacking trust in Jesus Christ at the end of your life, that would be really bad because it would send you to hell. This is the idea in verse 4, because when verse 1 begins, it says, therefore, which takes us up to verses you know, 15 to 19, where the Israelites would not enter into their promised land, that rest that God was giving them because of unbelief. Verse 19 says, so they were not able to enter the rest because of unbelief. They were not able to do that. So there is this alarm that we have, because you can see at verse 1, while a promise remains of entering his rest, lest any one of you may seem to have come short of it. It's the idea of you you get to the finish line. Maybe you said a prayer, you said, I believe in Jesus, and then you get, Maybe, maybe it's the day before you die you say i give up i'm done i am i'm done with god i'll never forget my my dad who was very kind to me very gracious to me who provided for me very well and during the the latter part of his life he said i don't want that christ and so this verse is saying we never want there to be any type of distress or unbelief in our heart, though we may have believed at the beginning, especially at the end, that we want to finish well, so that we enter this rest. You can see there, look at verse 1, therefore let us fear, and it's not let us fear God, let us fear while the promise remains. Today is the day of salvation. Today, not tomorrow, today. Have faith today. Have faith also when you finish, but right now, today. But what is this rest, then? What is this, this rest? Because it's used many times in this passage, and basically we could say that this rest starts at the beginning of creation and goes all the way to heaven. But let me give you four terms so we can understand this idea of, of rest. Rest. Creation rest, commandment to rest, the, the Sabbath day, keep Saturday, keep the Sabbath holy. Canaan rest, the, the holy land, the promised land, promised rest, and Christ rest. Salvation and then forever and forever with Christ. And this is a progression that we see in this passage remember that the Spirit of God is writing to people that were Hebrews and at least they had made professions for Christ and now they're being tempted because their lives are becoming progressively difficult. They're being tempted to go back to being Second Temple Judaizers because it's safer there. But to do that, then they would have to give up Christ. And Scripture says that It's not that perseverance in the faith saves you, but persevering in Christ shows that you're saved. And so then the Spirit of God is writing them in this section saying, don't drift away from Jesus, stick with Jesus by rest. Okay, what does this rest mean? Again, look at verse 1, a promise of rest. Well, what does this mean? Well, first is the creation rest. And you can see this in verses really 3 through 4. Where it talks about at the end of verse four, at the end of verse three, although his works were finished in the foundation of the world, he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Look at verse four. How come it says he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day? We believe in the inspiration of scripture. We believe that the spirit of God is writing scripture through an apostle, through a prophet, through a close associate of an apostle. And here, the Spirit of God is saying, almost scratching his head in verse 4, somewhere concerning the sum of today, it, it says this. Have you ever said that, where somebody said, has asked you, where does it say such and such in the Bible, and maybe you'd scratch your head and say, I think somewhere the Bible says this. You're not sure, but maybe. Is that what the Holy Spirit is doing here? Is the Holy Spirit going, I don't know, maybe it's found here? I, I think rather this is the idea that the Spirit of God, in a purposeful way, in a pointed way, is saying somewhere, like I don't know, maybe Genesis. It's 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 underscoring, it's highlighting, it's making a, a type of a humorous but holy hummus way to say, obviously, Genesis. It talks about God resting. And we saw this a couple of years ago when we looked at the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 2. By the sum of the day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the sum of the day from all his work which he had done. So in verse 4, of chapter 4 of Hebrews, when it says, he has said somewhere concerning the sum of day, and then he quotes from Genesis 2.2, 2, it's a way to say, of course, it's obvious that rest happened when? The rest happened at the very beginning. God created everything six days, he made the whole universe, and then he rested, not because he was exhausted, but he ceased work. And you can read the context of Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 1. And he said, it is good. It's awesome. This is fantastic. God rested. He ceased working on the seventh day to take delight in himself and in his work and what he had created. Also, if we were to look at Genesis two two and the seventh day, there is something that, that is missing. If you look at all the other six days... It would say at the end of each day, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. But on the sum of the day it doesn't say that. Why not? Most likely because it's setting up a pattern of a type of eternal rest of ceasing work and rejoicing, delighting in God and His goodness. And this is what Hebrews chapter 3, sorry, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 is talking about. Even at the foundation of the world, when God made everything, right then he established a pattern. Not a precept, it wasn't a precept there, but this pattern. That God worked hard, he made the whole universe, and then he stopped and went, this is awesome, this is good. God himself could say of himself, and it would be holy and righteous, God could say of himself, I'm amazing, look at all my work, isn't it fantastic? And so that was really the first Sabbath, the first rest. But then, of course, there is another Sabbath, and we see that and Exodus, part of the Ten Commandments, was that that the people of God, Israel, was to set aside a day of the week and to keep it holy unto the Lord. And that day of the week that they were to set aside was Saturday. And it's called in Hebrew, I think, not Sabbath, but Sabbath, or Sabbath. Okay? Hebrew, not Hebrews, Exodus chapter 20. Verse 8, remember the sabbath, remember the sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, Exodus 20, verse 8 and 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the sum of the day is a sabbath, sabbath, of the Lord your God. And in it you shall not do any work. You are your son, are your daughter, are your male, or your female servant, are your cattle, or your sojourn, or he stays with you. Then look at verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God did give a commandment to the nation Israel that on the seventh day of the week, which would be Saturday, they were to stop. And there were other requirements. They they weren't to make a fire. There was a certain distance. They weren't to go from their house. It was on Saturday that they would be with the family and rejoice and and worship and and meditate and delight and celebrate who God is and and all that he he did for them. It was not the day they went to their church. It wasn't the time when they would go to their synagogue. It was a time when they would just chill out and reflect and meditate and delight and and worship the Lord. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5.15. And how it talks about this. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out. Out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So they were to remember, they were to contemplate, to, to meditate, to think about their redemption. It wasn't just that they were in a legalistic way as Jesus had to confront the Pharisees. Don't help that cow that may have fallen into the ditch. That might be what the Pharisees would say and that's what they would emphasize. No, rather the emphasis of the seventh day of the Sabbath was to do what? To worship God because though I was in bondage, he set me free. That was the idea of the Sabbath day. That was what they were to do. They were to set aside this time to focus on God's redemption. It was basically they would hit a a pause button in their life. And not even go to church and gather. But just, you know, we're going to be still, right? Psalm 46, be still and know God. That's... What they would do. And this was a shadow of the Sabbath person that would come and bring us rest and deliverance out of our bondage. The Israelites were to stop on on the Sunday and Saturday and, and meditate and worship and be in wonder that God delivered them out of bondage and slavery from tyranny. Well, for all of mankind that trust in Christ, that happened. There is redemption in Jesus. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to a food or a drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, of that day of rest. They were to meditate on that redemption. The redemption has been accomplished, and it's applied by faith and trust in Jesus. Well, there was also, and we see this in our passage, the promised land of rest, the land of Canaan. There was this rest that could be had, that, that God promised. And we saw that in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And now even this same theme, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 19. And then it keeps going in our passage. You can look at chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter their rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And again, verse 3 is quoting from Psalm 95, and chapter 3 of Hebrews 7 through 11 also quoted Psalm 95, where David is talking about what's that, 300 years or so after Joshua. David is quoting Psalm 95 and says, Today, David is applying Psalm 95 and the, the wanderings of the Israelites and their disobedience to God and their unbelief in God's promises. God through David, in Psalm 95 is applying it to even David's generation. Well, remember that this would go back to the Abrahamic covenant, right? That is the promised land. Look at the book of Deuteronomy. And it's necessary that we understand these things because the word rest doesn't necessarily mean a cessation of all activity and you fall asleep. These are biblical metaphors, same word, different metaphors about an action that God did that we take refuge in. And so we have to understand these different metaphor or types that God has set up. Deuteronomy chapter 12, just turn there briefly, verses 9 through 10. I'll start in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 12. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security." God was going to give and did give to Israel a beautiful land of rest that if the Israelites trusted God and obeyed God and pursued God, he would give them the land and they would be secure and it would be flowing with milk and honey. This is the the land promise. If you go back and read Genesis 12 to 15, it was the promise that was given to Abraham from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, and eventually that was given through David and Solomon. But in our text, we know that because they murmured and disbelieved and were not trusting God that God would kill the giants, they had disbelief and they murmured against God. And so we see in verse 17 of chapter 3, God was angry with them. And that first generation, that generation that God delivered out of bondage and would have seen the Red Sea part and would have seen the glory cloud of God and, and the fire of pillar. So many great miracles. They were witnesses to, and yet they died, and their bodies fell in the wilderness, chapter 3, verse 17 of Hebrews. So you can see the picture. Uh, initially, they had faith. Remember, is it Exodus 15? They were singing. They had tambourines. Yay, hallelujah, right? You can go onto YouTube and see Asbury College and everybody is having a revival. Yes, 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 yes. And that's great. It's great to sing and have, have revival and feel the very presence of God. Have you ever felt that? I mean, have you ever been at a place where people did not want to stop singing and they were singing for hours and hours and hours and even days? And what that even now at Ashbury College is it real? Is it fake? Well, is what the Israelites felt is it Exodus fifteen after they had crossed through the Red Sea and they had seen the very power of God, and they sang a mighty song to God. Then after forty years, they said, "We don't believe you, God," and they weren't allowed to enter the rest. Yet, but what they felt at that moment earlier was it true in their hearts? Were they believing God at least in some sort of sense? They saw God do a great thing, and they sang a mighty song. It was a type of revival. In fact, Martin Louis Jones has a whole book on revival and covers different parts of the books of the Book of Exodus. But they came short of it. Chapter 4, verse 1. So the Holy Spirit is saying through the book of Hebrews, there can be a time when you have a type of sincere praise and you even feel some conviction and you feel gratitude. But that might not necessarily be authentic, true faith if it doesn't persevere all the way. And that's what I said to some people not here that were talking about uh, revival at Asbury College, and I applied it to other places where revivals had, had happened, and that is that there can be a, a sense of conviction. There can be a sense of God's presence. There can be even some confession of sin. It can be a work of the Holy Spirit of God. But unless there is... Regeneration and transformation. Then it's not revival. There has to be regeneration and transformation. And that that message has to be received by faith. And that's even here in the text. Verse 2. Just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. Because it was not united by faith but yet they sang. Yeah, they sang right then, and then weeks afterwards, days afterwards, they took the gold that was part of the party, the two million people, they made a golden calf and fell down and worshipped it. (laughs) Singing is not equal to faith. I'm not saying it's wrong to sing. It's wonderful to sing, right? We sing praises to the Lord. But don't mistake your singing for faith. Faith is more than that. It's not less than that. And so, God had promised to these, these precious Israelites a promised land, if they would just believe him. All they had to do was believe and go across the Jordan and the land of Israel. And out of those two million plus people, again, how many went in? Just two. Not even Moses. So are those people saved did those Israelites go to hell? I said, "I don't know. It says they were not able to enter the physical land of rest because of unbelief. And I think there are times in our life when we can look at some people and say, "Are they saved?" I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. This is the land of rest that God wanted to give the Israelites that would ultimately picture something else. And that is Christ's rest. Look down with me even further at this passage. And you can see in verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it. Now, certainly, he's not talking about the nation Israel, the, the, the physical land. It was still there, but it was occupied by, by Rome. Verse 6, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. It talks about the Israelites heard the good news. They heard the gospel. What would that have been for them? It would have been that Yahweh is Lord and Yahweh is going to give you the promised land and He's going to conquer all the giants. Trust Him. Depend upon Him. He's Lord. But yet they rejected that and their faith... That The lack thereof is called disobedience in verse six, but then notice verse seven there's still a day, a certain day he's fixed, and even David said this, and this would be after Joshua, David is still saying even though there was still the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath rest, and even though they were in the land of promise that they were resting in that land, David still says that there is another day today verse seven saying through David. After so longer time, just as has been said, don't harden your hearts today, you hear his voice, listen to him. And then verse 8 is very powerful. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So the Holy Spirit is saying that because David says in Psalm 95, today don't harden your hearts, he is saying that Joshua gave them a type of rest, but not That rest that God was talking about. And so that's why verse 9 says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, look at verse 8. And this is unique, and I think this is special. When it says Joshua, that's the same Greek term for Jesus. Jesus. So here in verse 8, if you have a, the old King James, it says, For if Jesus had given them rest. But verse 8 is not talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 8 is talking about Joshua and the Old Testament. This is the connection. The name of Joshua in the Old Testament in Hebrew would have been what? Yeshua. The name of Jesus, that's basically Latin, and Joshua is Latin, basically. But the name of Jesus, if a Hebrew was talking to Jesus, he would have said Yeshua, not Jesus. He would have said Yeshua. The Greek word is Esu, Some, very close to that. And that's the Greek word that's used here, but it can be for either Joshua, or it can be for Jesus, but the readers would have been, are the ones that listen to this, they would have seen the the normal Greek term for Jesus. And so it's a play on words. For if Joshua, well, my Messiah, his name is also Joshua, or Yeshua, Jesus. The first Joshua, in other words... Love the Lord, out of two million men, he was the one, he and Caleb, one of the two that believed God. But for how good Joshua was and giving him the promised land, there's somebody better than Joshua. There's a better leader. There's a better Messiah. There's somebody more spiritual, more godly, more capable, more wonderful, more better than Joshua. And that's Jesus Christ, Yeshua Christos. And so that's why verse 9 says, so there remains a, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, there is something better than the seventh day of the week that you should keep holy. That was the command that was given to the people of God. That's been fulfilled by Jesus, Colossians 2.16. There's something better than the land of rest, the physical land that was given to the people of Israel. There's something better, and that is Jesus Christ and this a certain type of rest that he gives. Because the one that, verse 10, that has entered his rest. Notice there's no command in this passage for you to rest. There's no command here, thou must rest. It's enter into his rest. It may be subtle, but it's significant. Enter into what he has accomplished for you. For the one who has entered his rest is like God, hitting the pause button and sitting back and enjoying all that God has done for them in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I'm entering the rest that you have accomplished for me. That's the idea of chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. And there is this alarm that we should have of i'm not going to believe that he's provided a rest for my soul what is this rest that he has provided it's chapter 2 verse 17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God. And so when I take rest, when I take refuge in him, I am safe. This is the rest. The rest that is a refuge. Chapter 1, verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down. His work, his effort is done. His work is over. Accomplished. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels. Him, Jesus Christ, sitting down beside God the Father, signifies he did his work. It is finished. It's done. It's over. Redemption. Accomplished. So come and rest. Take refuge and Jesus, and Yeshua. This is why, Psalm 12, verse 2, blessed is him who takes refuge in me, and him. Even Psalm 34, verse 8, oh, taste and see that God is good. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You take refuge, you take rest, you, you seek to reside in him and his work and what he did. And you have this alarm that, It's not just for the beginning of my Christian life, but for the end of my Christian life. In fact, when I end the Christian life, I'm taking refuge in Jesus even more than I did at the very beginning. And you fear if that ever changes. That's what you fear. You don't fear balloons from China. You don't fear aliens You don't feel the stock market collapsing. You don't fear Russia, China, Iran. You fear your lack of faith. That's what this passage is saying. Fear God and then fear that you don't finish well. Finish well. How do you finish well? Keep believing Jesus. Till the end. Now, There is a, a a second way for us to to understand this idea of taking rest, and we see this in chapter four, and it's it's not as long. as chapter four, verse eleven through thirteen. There is a in this section. There is both an exhortation and a motivation. The exhortation is verse eleven. The motivation is verses twelve to thirteen. We'll look at 12 to 13 next week. For this morning, we're just going to look at this exhortation. And that is this. You and I, we must resolve to work extremely hard to rest. I'm not asking you, I'm I'm not saying take a vacation from life. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this passage is saying work hard to rest in Jesus. So the first part of this text is basically saying to be certain that you take rest in Jesus. He did the work. You can't work your way to heaven. You have to rest in Him. And then the second point of this text is saying work extremely hard to rest in Him. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is this magnificent shepherd. Look at verse 11. Therefore, based upon that there is still a rest, there is still this person and a place that for you to to have to possess you have to believe therefore based upon that let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall not one person in this congregation through following the example of the Israelites diligence use every effort push yourself do, do some of you like to push yourself I, love, I don't, I'm not talking about me, but there can be this theme, this, this motto, this bravado. I push myself. That's fantastic. Do you push yourself to rest in Jesus? That's this idea of therefore let us be diligent. Do you work hard to take refuge in Christ? It takes hard work to take refuge in Jesus. It takes a type of faith hard work to rest in Jesus. Luke 13:24. Jesus even talked about this. Luke 13:24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Even Jesus talked about there's a type of striving to actually go to heaven. Be ruthless on yourself. And the grace of God. A certain type of faith that really fights to rest in Jesus. Okay, what does this mean though? Push yourself, use every effort, work really hard to rest in Jesus. I think there are many different ways we can say this. Stop seeking to be good enough to get to heaven. Stop seeking to be good enough to get to heaven. You ain't good enough to get to heaven. Scripture says, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. I'll just do verse 10. There was no one who was good, not even one. You might say, hey, I'm pretty good. No, you're not. That's a lie. You're you're not that good. Not compared to God, not compared to Jesus, not compared to the Bible. I certainly am not. Scripture says that there's only one person that is good, and that is God, Jesus Christ. Nobody is good enough to get to heaven. And if you think you're good enough to get to heaven, you're going to have a world of woe, and you'll make yourself very weary your whole life, seeking to be good enough to get to heaven. And then it's tragic, because you will open your eyes after you, you die, and you realize you weren't good enough. And then you're in a fate that can never be changed, hell forever. Trying to be good, you will buy a stairway that leads not to heaven, but to hell. And so resting in Jesus means I'm going to stop trying to be good enough to get to heaven. You can't do it. You can't. That's why there's a Savior. That's why Jesus came. Second, stop trying to pay back God for your sin because that would take forever in hell. Not only at times, even as a believer, even as somebody that has professed, Jesus says, Lord, I receive you by faith into my life. I trust you alone. There can be, because of remaining sin, this temptation of, let me see if I can pay God back for his forgiveness. Well, Scripture says the wages of sin is Death. That's eternal death. It's not paid to Satan. It's paid to God. And that would take how long for me to pay God back for my sin? Forever. So resting in Jesus and being diligent and taking effort to do that means I'm going to stop this mentality, this heart mentality of I have to pay God back. If you really want to pay God back, that's your choice. Beloved, it's your choice. You can pay God back if that's the path you choose. It will take forever and hell. But you can do that. I would advise not to do that. Not the best option. Rather believe in Jesus, trust him. Enter into that true, promised land. Stop and rest. Jesus Christ paid the debt. He is our propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God for sin on the cross. He is the precious Lamb of God. Further, stop comparing yourself with others, not as moral as you. When you rest in Jesus, you're resting in Him. It's not that I, hmm, who in this congregation is not as good as me? Okay, I'm better than that person. Stop comparing yourself to your spouses, to your kids, to your parents, to your neighbors. Instead, compare yourself to Jesus. Try that one. So the next time you compare yourself to your spouse, your friend, your neighbor, your parent, your child, stop and compare yourself to Jesus Christ. Do you meet his standard? Compare yourself to God because Jesus Christ says in Matthew five forty eight, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Are you perfect? No. And so you rest in Jesus. It's not competition. You're not in competition with your spouse, your neighbor, your parents or your children or somebody at church. You're not. The battle was fought. The battle was won by Jesus. Stop and rest in him. Further, stop trusting that coming to church is like trusting in Jesus. I think that's kind of the Americana gospel. Maybe it's the world gospel. The good news is can be construed if you come to church. That's equal to trusting Jesus. It's not. You can come to church every day of your life, read your Bible every day of your life. You can be a missionary. You cannot drink or smoke. You cannot fool around sexually and yet still go to hell. Coming to church, being a good person, being moral, and being upright is good enough to get you into hell. If you have not rested in Jesus, and that means that you come to Christ and say, I can't save myself, only Christ can save me. And from the first day until to the last breath you have, your cry is, Jesus, save me. I'm like that tax collector. Lord, atone for my sin. Thank you, Jesus. And your resolve is that now and tomorrow and 50 years from now and the day you die, your cry won't be, Lord, look at the life I've lived. Look how good I was. But rather on your deathbed, you'll be, look how good Jesus is. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I have nothing to show to you, but you gave me your grace and Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect righteousness. And that's resting in Christ. That's resting in him. And that's what's being communicated to these dear people. And then finally, stop trying to carry the burden of perfectionistic, heart-draining legalism. Legalism just saps the soul that destroys the heart. Matthew 11, verse 28. Of course, you know this passage. Tremendous passage. Matthew 11, verse 28. This is Jesus Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come and rest in Jesus Christ. He is the king, but he's the king of kindness. He's the king, but he is the king of kindness and the king of rest. We can battle legalism, perfectionisticism, anxiety about our sin anxiety about the world, the cure for all of that is resting in Jesus. He's Lord and He's good. He's King and He's my Savior. And even Hebrews chapter 2 would say, my brother. That is tremendous. So, drifting away from Christ is a heart issue. But to drift away from Christ would mean You're not resting in Jesus. Why wouldn't you rest in Jesus? We all are resting in something. We all take refuge in something. What are you resting in? Why not rest in Jesus? Is there anybody better than Jesus? Is there anything in the universe better than Jesus? Not one thing. Jesus is the best there is. Rest in Him. Lord, we thank You for this Word. Lord, we pray that we would rest in You for salvation, for growing in Christ, for being free from anxiety and legalism and and, perfectionisticism and moralism and comparisonism and all these different things, Lord. May we take refuge in the work that you have done for us, Lord. And those, Lord, that are being tempted to drift away, may they seek rest only in Jesus. Lord, we give you praise and we thank you. Amen.